the National Archives podcast series. Was Richard II mad? Presented by Terry Jones. Ah, Richard II, yes. This, uh, actually, this talk really is sort of based on this. Uh, it's come out of this article that I wrote for Nigel Saul in that uh, 14th century uh, 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 um, England thing. Um, uh, and it's also come out of the who murdered Chaucer uh, uh, thing, because I, I, I just I hate injustices, and I really feel uh, Richard's had a, an injustice done to him over the last 600 years. Well, um, when I started uh, doing this uh, talk, um, the first thing I realised, of course, was that uh, most people I was uh, talking to wouldn't have a clue who Richard II was. I mean, of course, not this evening, of course, we all know. Um, but I thought I ought to explain to them that I'm not talking about Richard I, um, the, the Lionheart hated England, despised England. I don't think he, he lived here more than about six months. Um, he wanted to sell London um, to the highest bidder if he could, and he spent most of his life uh, trying to kill Muslims. So, of course, he gets a statue outside the House of Parliament. Um, <laughs> nor am I talking about Richard III. Um, although... <laughs> I, I did uh, Google Richard II, and it said, are you sure you don't mean Richard III? <laughs> uh, no, I'm talking about Richard II. Uh, uh, Richard II, he was the son of the Black Prince. Um, he was ruled from uh, 1377 to 1399. Um, he was ten years old when he came to the throne, and he was usurped and murdered by his cousin, Henry IV. Now, uh, generally, the historical record, or the, uh, the his historians have generally in the past um, recorded Richard as being insecure, hysterical, vengeful, megalomaniacal, and in the 20th century, they've certainly called him mad. Um, uh, I suppose a lot of people get their idea about Richard from Shakespeare, um, who uh, paints him more like a sort of a, a weak feat uh, an unmanly sort of character. And I'd like to sort of suggest that um, even Shakespeare's portrait of Richard II bears uh, as little resemblance to uh, Richard as uh, this bust of Shakespeare, this Lego bust of Shakespeare does to Shakespeare. Um, it's a rather wonderful thing, really. <laughs> um, but everybody has agreed that he, uh, Richard II was a tyrant. And he became a tyrant in 1397. Um, when, uh, and he was a tyrant who was uh, hated by his people. I mean, he became a tyrant in 1397 when he uh, executed the Earl of Arundel. He invited uh, the uh, Earl of Warwick to a, a, a banquet and then had him arrested and imprisoned for life. Um, and he, uh, he went and arrested himself. He arrested his uncle, uh, the Duke of Gloucester, and uh, sent him off to Calais, um, where he died. Oh, what a surprise. Um, and then he started, uh, he gave honours to all his followers, uh, to a lot of his followers, not all his followers. Um, and uh, Nigel Saul has said that never before had so many honours been dispensed at one time. And Walsingham, the, the, the great chronicler, uh, refers very dis uh, disparagingly to them as the Duchetti. Um, so they, they were really scorned, in, uh, apparently, according to Walsingham. Um, he also abolished legislation designed to restrain his household expenditure. And we, and we know it must have been pretty uh, big, because recently, just in the last five years, they've discovered this uh, list of, of Richard's treasures. And it's a, a, a vast list. You can hear uh, Jenny Stratford here uh, uh, putting it out. Um, he also demanded people sue for pardons and pay for them, of course. Um, he also got areas to appoint um, deputies uh, who then had to sign blank charters. Actually, they weren't really blank charters. They were just charters of allowing the king to do whatever he liked. Um, and he uh, censored foreign correspondence. I just, I, I just had this picture because I was like, this guy about to stab his eye out with a pen. I thought, but something about censorship there. Um, now, uh, and according to Walsingham, um, no one dared stand up for the truth on account of the king's tyranny and malice. Now, this would have come as a bit of a surprise to Richard himself, because uh, Richard actually saw himself as a great defender of the world against tyranny. Um, and we know this because in the first uh, parliament of Richard's reign when he, in 1397, when he actually was first time he was ruling in his own, uh, in his own right, 
and with his own power, he had full power, um, he says in the Parliament, he said that the King of France and the King of England are the great champions of Christianity. And uh, if they happen to know of any king or prince who by tyranny would conquer and destroy the Christian people, they are bound by right to destroy such a tyrant and destroyer and restore and recover those oppressed and deprived of their estates. And Richard himself saw himself as a defender of people against tyranny. So maybe we need to uh, find out what the people in the, Middle, uh, in the Middle Ages, in the medieval world, how they saw a tyrant. What, in their eyes, made a tyrant? What was the difference between a, a tyrant like uh, Nero and a legitimate ruler? Um, apart, of course, from the silly hats. Um, <laughs> Well, actually, fortunately, we know quite a lot about what uh, people in the, 40, in, the, in the Middle Ages thought about uh, this distinction between kings uh, and, and tyrants. And we know it because they, a lot of people wrote books of rules for princes and wrote political tracts about what the nature of kingship was. And um, all of these uh, tracts in the, in, the, in the Middle Ages, most of them are based on Aristotle's distinction between a tyrant and a king. And Aristotle said that um, a tyrant is somebody who rules in his own interests and a king is somebody who rules in the interests of his people. I think actually it's a rather good distinction. I think we should make it nowadays. You know, I think it would be quite interesting to see uh, who turns out to be tyrants and who turns out to be illegitimate rulers. Um, but uh, Aristotle said a government which looks to the common interest is called kingship Tyranny is government by a single person directed to the interests of that person. So that's the definition of, ty of tyranny. Uh, incidentally, if you're wondering why I've got this picture of a naked lady riding a, a naked old man, um, that's because the, the old man is Aristotle. Um, because this is based on a, an apocryphal story that was uh, going around in the Middle Ages, that uh, Aristotle was the tutor of Alexander the Great. Um, and he kept on telling Alexander that he shouldn't be uh, going to bed with his wife quite so much. And when, his wife, when Alexander's wife got to hear of this, uh, he, she was a bit pissed off, really. Uh, and so she set about seducing uh, Aristotle to show he was human, really, I suppose. And eventually she had him crying for, to go to bed with her. And eventually she said, all right, well, you can come to bed with me. Um, you can make love to me if you come naked and let me ride you. And uh, then she sort of uh, set it up so that, Arist uh, so that Alexander could see. So he's looking out of the wind, out of the turret up there. Um, and, uh, of course, um, uh, uh, Aristotle just was uh, proved to be human, so he, he left off lecturing Ar uh, Alexander off that. Anyway, that was the story. The way Aristotle's definition of uh, tyrants and, and kings gets transmitted into the, uh, into the Middle Ages is mainly through Thomas Aquinas. He's the first person to, act, uh, to, to do it. Um, and uh, Aquinas follows Aristotle's distinction again. He says, if a ruler governs in such a way as to secure the common good, such rule will be right and just. If, however, the government is directed towards the private good of the ruler, such a ruler is called a tyrant. It's Aristotle's distinction again. And this goes all the way through. Um, Giles of Rome, um, perhaps the most, in the 14th century, perhaps the most uh, influential of all the writers of uh, rules for princes, the most read, certainly. Uh, we know that uh, Edward III had a, a copy of his book, um, and as did uh, uh, Simon Burley, uh, the uh, uh, richest tutor. Um, so... We, 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 and Hockleave mentions that Henry, the Prince of Wales, has got one. This is Henry the Fourth's son. Um, so it was a very influential book, and it's impossible that Richard wouldn't have known of Giles of Rome. And the same distinction of a tyrant acting in his own interests and a rightful ruler acting in the interests of people goes all the way through everybody who wrote about uh, uh, the nature of, of monarchy and, and tyranny in the, in the Middle Ages, um, except for one. Um, and uh, Machiavelli, of course, was a very naughty boy. <laughs> Because he wrote a book of rules for princes that was just about how to rule in your own interest. It's actually a, a, a book of rules for tyrants, actually. Um, however, uh, Aquinas uh, did make uh, one slight uh, fudge on Aristotle's uh, thing. He said that uh, he claimed that Aristotle said that kingship was by far the best form of government. Now, it's always a bit, I mean, Aristotle's wonderful, but, but he's always a bit, it's always a bit 
difficult to pin down what he actually says because he rehearses so many different arguments. But as far as I can see, um, he, he, he does say that kingship can theoretically be the best form of government. But, but the judge, he says at one point, another point, the judgment of a single man is bound to be corrupted when he's overpowered by anger or by any other similar emotion. But it's no easy task to make everyone get angry and go wrong simultaneously. So is not the balance clearly in favour of the greater number? And it seems to me that Aristotle really comes down in favour of power being invested in the middle classes. Now, of course, this wasn't uh, the kind of thing that uh, uh, the, the writers of books of all the princes in the Middle Ages, because they were writing books uh, uh, that were being, uh, uh, you know, like uh, Aquinas was writing for Hugh of III of Cyprus. Um, so they were being patronised by, by these kings. So it wouldn't be very good for them to sort of write that, uh, well, actually, I think uh, the best form is middle, a government by the middle class, not by the kingship. Um, and all the books of rules uh, of prince, for princes, they emphasise how important it is for the king to have power. Um, John of Salisbury says, the prince's will has the force of judgment, and that which pleases him has the force of law. Giles of Rome emphasised all honour and privilege in society must stem from the king. It's very important for the king to, to have this power. And that's uh, uh, and we know Simon Burley uh, had a copy of Giles of Rome. Uh, Michael de, de la Pole, one of Richard's uh, uh, early advisers. Simon was his tutor, of course. Um, and Nigel Saul tells us that under the Black Prince, both these men um, had witnessed lordship at its most vigorous and assertive. So Richard would have been brought up with the idea of strong leadership, strong kingship, as long as it's in the interests of the people and not in your own interests. And this actually whole theory can actually uh, come up with surprising uh, ideas of government. Um, the, uh, Philippe Metziers, who was um, Chancellor of Cyprus at one time and the great protagonist for reviving the Crusades, presented a, a book uh, called A Letter to uh, King Richard II. And in it, he describes uh, his vision of the perfect society. And he describes it as, a, as a, a, an orchard, the delectable orchard. And he, in, when he describes this perfect society, it sounds very socialist, although it's governed by a king. He says, um, All fruits were held in common by the inhabitants, to each according to his need. And the words, my own, were never heard. All tyranny and harsh rule was banished from the garden. Though there was a king who stood for authority and the common good, and he was so loved and looked up to that he might have been the father of each and all, and no wonder, for he had such concern for the welfare of his subjects that neither he nor his children owned anything in person. So that's the kind... Actually, it might be quite interesting to find out about ownership and whether Richard himself actually thought he owned anything. Um, so I think this is what Richard was trying to... This is certainly the way Richard would have been taught and brought up to believe in, this strong leadership in the interests of people and being the good father. And this, of course, being a father in the Middle Ages meant you need uh, obedience and you need submission. And that's exactly what, when Richard takes over power in 1397 in his coup, um, uh, the, his chancellor says in the first parliament that, that there are three things that good government needs. And the first is that the king shall have power to govern, second, that the laws should be kept, and third, that the subjects should be duly obedient to the king. Um, and I think this is what those blank charters were about. It's the, what, what Richard is saying, you've got to trust me, you've got to give, uh, put everything in my hands and then I'll be merciful and I'll, do, I'll see to justice and I'm, I am ruling in your interests. And, and I think that's what these blank charters were probably about. And it's also not very far away from what the peasants... Uh, it's not just the aristocracy wanted this kind of uh, rule. It's actually the peasantry. They, that was what they demanded in 1381 when they revolted. Um, the anon, 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 I can never say it. Anonimale Chronicle. Anonimale Chronicle. I can never say it. Um, says, it tells us that the peasants demanded that no lord should have lordship in future, but it should be divided among all men except for the king's own lordship. In other words, he said, he said they, the peasants were saying, let's do away with the, the barons and just be ruled by the king uh, 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 and, and we'll live uh, uh, under the king and let him dispense justice. Uh, Giles of Rome now also said that a king needs to be both held in dread and loved. I've got a feeling this is one of the things that Richard went about, set about doing, is actually sort of making people afraid of him, because it was, it was, it was, you had to put on a stern face. Um, and we can see in the prologue to the uh, Legend of Good Women, 
by, by Geoffrey Chaucer. Uh, he describes how um, he meets the God of love. Uh, and the God of love is very clearly uh, um, uh, associated with Richard. So we, everybody, when Chaucer was reading this out, would know that the God of love is Richard. And one of the things that he says is that the God of love, rather oddly for the God of love, he sternly on me, he began, he began behold, so that his looking doth mine heart a cold. Ooh. And I bet you there was a sort of bit of a laugh went round when that was done. And if he was doing it in front of Richard himself, I bet everybody started looking, this is Richard. <laughs> um, we also got pictures of, uh, of Richard frowning. Um, there's this one in the book of Benefactors of St. Albans Abbey, and there's another one uh, where, where this, is, this is his queen, Anne, um, kneeling behind, and, and, and uh, Richard's shown with a very handsome man, actually, but with these frowning brows. Um, and even in this, uh, this is uh, from the, uh, <coughs> the, the, the Troilus and Crusader. This is the frontispiece to uh, uh, the earliest manuscript of the Troilus and Crusader. Um, and you can see again, Richard's a very handsome man, but with, with these kind of stern look, and everybody's doffing their caps and bowing to him. Um, so it was, a, it was I, I suspect that was a, a form, what you did. You, you, you looked very stern as you went around. But the thing was, uh, it, the way they defined tyranny was not how much power was concentrated in one person, it was what you did with that power, that you did it for the, uh, for the benefit of the people. And you can't equate um, the, uh, the kings of the, uh, the powerful rulers of the Middle Ages with uh, the 20th century um, dictators. So, so you've got a king, a powerful ruler, and of course you've got this man with all the power. So what is the aim of good government? Um, well, again, the books are very clear on this. Um, Giles of Rome says the peace and security to all the realm is, is the most important thing. And this is repeated by Bartolus and Sassiferato. Um, and, uh, and certainly we can see this is what Richard himself actually puts into practice. Uh, he, he, he tries to get peace. He, he aims for peace with After the peasants' revolt, um, which was a lot of it came about because um, of the, the, the taxes were, were to raise money for the continuing the war with France. And uh, the court party were determined to go for a peace with France from that moment, from that moment on. I mean, the, the, between uh, 1377 and 1381, there's an amazing a quarter of a million pounds had, been go, had gone into the military coffers. I mean, it's just a huge amount of money uh, for, for that date. But Richard was up against the hawks. Um, and, you know, it, it, history just repeats itself all the time, I suppose, in many ways. Uh, in particular, the Duke of Glo uh, Gloucester, um, the Earl of Warwick, and Arundel. Um, now, they uh, were making money out of the war and, 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 uh, and enlarging their, 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 their um, entourage. Um, Gloucester was a bit pissed off because here he was, he was the... Uh, um, he should have been one of the most powerful men in the, in the land, but he felt he'd been passed over. And when Richard came onto the throne, he only got £1,000 a year, which, and he had to get that from foreign priories. So, um, uh, and they were, they were hard up, so he, he was really on his uppers. He really needed to get money out of, out of the war. Uh, Warwick was in a similar sort of situation. Arundel, on the other hand, was an extremely wealthy man, but he just liked fighting. I think he was just a, a bit of a, a, a mean bugger, personally. And Philippe de Metzies describes these, the, 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 the war party, the, the hawks in Richard's uh, council. He calls them great boars, black and bristling sons of that mighty black boar who so many times had destroyed the vineyards of France. And he even fingers Arundel as being the leader of the, of the hawks. It was true that there were some among the knights who no longer favoured the war, but through fear of the black boars, and in particular a certain count of Arundel, they did not dare say a word nor support their king. So the, the hawks were working against Richard's peace policy right, right from the start. And of course there were, uh, and actually Jean Lebel tells us, the war-loving nobles had long conspired against Richard on several occasions while he was seeking peace with France because they had found war a source of considerable profit. And indeed, there's one uh, uh, example when uh, uh, Gloucester is actually being a traitor in, 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 on the peace embassy in 1383, when he's meant to be um, uh, negotiating a peace with France, and he's actually secretly working against it. And Foissart uh, tells us, Gloucester secretly told his friends that he would never agree to any peace with France, whatever negotiations might be taken in hand on the subject, 
if it were not an honourable one, and of course by that he means they give us everything and we keep everything and we, we don't let any of them do anything. And in this he was joined by the barons, many of the barons of England, particularly the Earl of Arundel. And they dissembled, and Poisson again says, they dissembled their opinions in public, seeing how much the King of England was bent on peace. So Richard was having a, an uphill struggle to, uh, uh, to, uh, to, to achieve peace with France against the Hawks. Now, this uh, picture is a picture of, uh, I think it's Peter the Hermit, presenting the letter to Richard, uh, Philippe de Metzier's letter to Richard II. And here's Richard sort of standing there, looking very, sort of gazing into the middle distance. Yeah, you give me this. Um, but what's interesting is, the, is these little group behind these. And I think we can identify these people as Gloucester, Warwick, and Arundel. And the reason I think that um, is because you can see this guy here. And what's happened there? They're the hawks. And this book, Philippe de Metzi, is, 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 is pushing peace with France. And that's what the whole book is about. And you can see this guy uh, here. He's going, oh, my God, what is it? What's going on? You know, <laughs> um, and they're all going, oh, God, what's happening? You know, and, and you can see this guy here behind them, this, this strange figure behind the throne. He's got his arm around, around this character. Now, of course, this is Thomas Arundel, the, uh, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's, he's the, or he's the Chancellor. When, when is this? The 1389. He's actually the Chancellor at this point. He's the Archbishop of York. But he's the power behind the throne. And he's, of course, the brother of, uh, 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 of the Earl of Arundel. And, so, and, that, and that, having his arm around him shows that that's their brothers. And so this must mean that these are Warwick and, and Gloucester uh, on that side. And, of course, uh, the other people who, who were very keen on war was the poor soldiers, because, as Poissard says, the poorer knights and archers were, of course, for war, as their sole livelihood depended on it. So when Richard finally gets this uh, truce with France, which is meant to be for 20 years, in 1396, it's a real, it's a huge achievement. I mean, it was a, it, it was a great thing to actually uh, to have done, and I don't think he's ever been given credit for it. Um, it's also, he's, a, he's so keen on keeping the peace with France that when, his, uh, when Anne of Bohemia dies, um, he actually marries the seven-year-old uh, Isabella, who is the daughter of the King of France. And he does this just to cement, to make sure there can't be any more conflicts between the two sides. And of course, I, you know, I think it's a very brave thing to do, because of course there were people at the time who went, whoa, 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 seven-year-old, you know, what's he after, you know. And, um, and he was prepared to sort of take that sort of uh, rubbish in order to cement the peace with France. Now the other kind of peace uh, that uh, all the books of rules for princes say we need is a peace at home. Um, but of course, again, uh, uh, this is what Dante says in, in, in his book on, on monarchy, um, but again, he's up against the warring nobles, the barons. His barons were an unruly knot. And right from the very beginning of his reign, they're working against him. In 1384, uh, the Earl of Arundel stands up in, in Parliament in Shrewsbury um, and, and actually tears the king off a strip. And the king's only, what, 15 at this time or something like that. And um, Arundel stands up and says... Any kingdom in which prudent government is lacking stands in peril of destruction. And the fact is now being illustrated before your very eyes, since this country is at present almost in a state of decay. I mean, this is insulting stuff to stand up and say in front of, uh, of the king. And no wonder Richard went pale with anger uh, and, and tried to get at Arundel. And Arundel was constantly goading Richard. And he was like 20 years older than Richard, um, but he's constantly uh, pushing him and, 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 and putting him down. Um, and, and even when at Anne's funeral, um, Arundel arrived late. He was the first from, of everybody to ask permission to withdraw. And he said, because I, I've got some pressing business. You know, I mean, it's, again, it's insulting to, to, to Richard and to Anne to say, I've got more important things to do than come to this uh, funeral. And Richard was so livid, he actually flew at Arundel at this time and banged his head on the floor. Uh, and, uh, and there was blood on the floor of the abbey, so they had to stop all the celebration, all the, all the funeral things and uh, services and, and reconsecrate the abbey. <clears throat> Gloucester was also, uh, he was like 15 years older than Richard, he's also always putting Richard down and also sort of always goading Richard. <coughs> uh, Philippe de Metzia says he's conceived a great hatred for his nephew uh, and could no way speak well of him. Gloucester was old, 27, and Richard was then uh, 15 at this, at this point. And when the king sent for him, if it was his pleasure, he would come, but more frequently he stayed at home. Uh, 
and from his rough manner, he was more dreaded by the king than any of his uncles, for in his speech he never spared him. And so so the un- Richard's uncles were constantly putting him down, uh, being uh, horrible to him. And then, in fact, they actually, uh, uh, they actually took arms up against him in 1386. Um, in, 1387, in 1386, they sort of took over the government and sort of put spies into his household to see how much he was spending. Um, and in, in 1387, they actually took arms ag- against the, the royal army. It, in 1388, um, they, they took over power totally and they destroyed uh, Richard's uh, affinity, Richard's following. Um, uh, they uh, killed a, a lot of, uh, something like killed and exiled, something like 18 of Richard's uh, closest uh, uh, friends and associates. And these are the three guys who Richard, uh, were in the so-called tyranny, when Richard takes over in 1397, it's these three guys that he, uh, 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 he, he gets rid of. He, get, he executes Arundel because he's the most dangerous of the bunch, Warwick isn't so much a problem, so he puts him in jail in the, the Isle of Man or somewhere. Uh, and, he, and again, I think he shows great bravery when he, he actually personally goes to arrest Gloucester. Uh, this is Gloucester here. And Richard actually goes to arrest his uncle himself, uh, which he doesn't need to do, but I guess he feels that he had to do that. And again, these pictures, they always have something a little bit more to show in, the, in them. When you look at them, the more you look at them. In this one, here's Richard arresting Gloucester. And here you can see this guy going, oh, my God, what's going on? And, this, and Gloucester's wife going, oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Um, and then you see this guy on the right uh, behind Richard saying, yes, he's getting there, arrest him. <laughs> so in 1397, Richard finally is ruling in his own right and actually has power. And he writes to uh, the Duke of Bavaria and says, uh, several noblemen have, since we were of tender years, traitorously conspired to disinherit our crown and usurp our royal power. And uh, he writes to the Byzantine emperor, we have restored peace uh, to our subjects, which by God's blessing shall last forever. Now, so, that, so it shows you that Richard was actually thinking in terms of the books of Wolves of Princes. He was thinking that this is what peace is, is our objective, uh, peace at home and peace abroad. And getting rid of these, two, these three really traitorous, disgraceful <laughs> troublemakers was, I think, absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, but, of course, the uh, God's blessing didn't last very long. Now, another thing that people say about Richard is that, he, of course, he was a megalomaniac. And this is where we're getting into the propaganda, the black propaganda that's been churned out by uh, his usurper. Um, they also say that he was vain. Um, and uh, this all comes from the, well, from the articles of deposition. They, they accuse him of spending vast sums of money, which he dissipated, for the ostentation and pomp and vainglory of his name. Now, well, you know, maybe Richard was uh, vainglorious. I don't know. He would be a spoilt brat. But we can't confuse uh, what was a policy, matter of policy with, uh, with his own predilections. And the thing is, that to actually put on a great display of show and, uh, 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 and uh, vanity, if you like, or ostentation, was absolutely de rigueur. You had to do it. You couldn't be join the, uh, the, 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 the family of nations in, 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 the, in Europe uh, in the 14th century without putting on a big display. Um, nobody would take you seriously if you, if you didn't. It was absolutely important to do that. Um, uh, Charles, uh, Richard's father-in-law, Charles, uh, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor, he's got a really big crown there, you can see. Um, and, and, and Richard being portrayed like that, is, is portraying the, 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 the office. Uh, and to actually say that it's because he likes dressing up is, I think, uh, uh, missing the point. Uh, his other father-in-law, his, his second father-in-law, uh, uh, the, the French court was incredibly uh, rich and luxurious, and, and you had to put on a big show uh, in order to be, hold your head up and move in these circles. And in fact, also, the books of Wills of Princes, um, some of them actually say this is important too. Uh, uh, the kings should be rich in men and goods, otherwise they can't maintain the state that God has given them. And this is the important thing, it's God has given them uh, the, this, the, this, uh, this state. Because the, uh, John of Salisbury says, the prince is a kind of likeness on earth of the divine majesty. And there was always this analogy going back to the, ki- the king representing God on the earth. It goes back to Thomas Aquinas, 
who says uh, in his book on kingship, he says, the king is in the kingdom what the soul is in the body and what God is in the world. So, um, uh, and, this is, this is, uh, and also in the Secretum Secretorum, as a, a king is likened to God. And this is what, uh, when people say, oh, well, here's Richard looking like Christ in this golden frame. Um, well, it, it, he's actually just doing what the books of, uh, print, uh, of rules of princes say a rightful ruler should do. He's actually representing uh, God. And I think to call it narcissism, um, as, as Nigel Sol does in his wonderful uh, biography of Richard, I, I think it is, it is, again, missing the point. Um, and it's actually, what I think it is doing is actually repeating the black propaganda that was put out by Henry IV and, and, his, uh, and his followers. Walsingham, uh, Thomas Walsingham, the chronicler, um, says about the Parliament of 1397, uh, when Sir John Bushy was the, uh, was the Chancellor, he said he imputed to the young king divine honours, finding strange and flattering words hardly suitable for mere mortals. Um, now, Walsingham is being, uh, he's, he's calling the king young. The king young in 1397? He's 30, for God's sake. Why is he saying young? Um, what he's doing is, he's, he's, he's parroting uh, uh, Thomas Arundel, Archbishop, who is now Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Arundel's uh, uh, address to Parliament uh, at the beginning of Henry IV's reign in which uh, Arundel stands up and he says, in place of a boy, ah, Richard was a boy, uh, we know how a man will now rule over the people. Arundel, of course, we think, uh, has actually been very instrumental in getting, Richard, in getting Henry onto the throne. He'd been, uh, he'd been uh, exiled as uh, Archbishop of Canterbury uh, in 1397, and he, had, he was on his uppers, had got nothing to look forward to. He, he'd, been, he'd been the most powerful man in England for like 10 years, and he was desperate to get back, and Henry was his only opportunity to get back. And I'm pretty, pretty sure that uh, it was Arundel who pushed Henry to go for the throne of, of England. <clears throat> Arundel went on in the same address to Parliament in, th- uh, in 1399. He says, a boy loves vanity in the same way a man understands truth and wisdom. And this, this angle was picked up, it was spin, and this spin was picked up by, by all the chroniclers and parroted um, uh, in the continua, uh, continuatio eulogi. eulogi um, there's a story going uh, that, he would, that Richard would order a throne to be prepared for him in his chamber, on which he liked to sit ostentatiously from after dinner until vespers, talking to no one but watching everyone. And when his eye fell on anyone, regardless of rank, that person had to bend his knee towards the king. Sounds like a pretty boring way of spending the evening, if you ask me. But, um, uh, and, of course, it's all nonsense. Um, it's uh, uh, George Stowe. Um, I thought it's about time we had a picture of a historian. So here's a historian. Um, George Stowe uh, has recently proved, I think pretty conclusively, that that passage in that, in that chronicle is actually a, a later textual interpretation and it's, by, it's been written by somebody with a personal and determined dislike for Richard II. And I think, he, I think he's absolutely right about that. Um, besides, just look at the, the, the tombs. Who is, you know, Richard's lying here in plain robes uh, in Westminster Abbey, and compare that with Henry IV with his crown and full regalia. Now, who's, who's the one who, who, who wanted to be remembered for his, uh, for his uh, uh, ostentatious display? Rich is also accused of extravagance, of spending far too much in his household. Um, although Chris Given Wilson has said that, uh, uh, had recorded the levels of spending and said they're pretty admirably low level, he calls them. Uh, 3077, 3085, 13,500, 16,000. A little bit higher than, than Ed III. And then, of course, in 1386, when the, uh, when the uncles take over uh, controlling his spending, it goes right down to 12. Uh, 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 um, but in fact, the, uh, that particular period, 1386 to 1389, is the cheapest three-year period for the wardrobe throughout the years 1360 to 1413. So this whole thing about Richard being extravagant and spending too much, it's all just like the usual hype uh, that, that, that people uh, come out. Now, it's true that he did uh, levy unprecedented taxes in 1398. Um, uh, the, he gets the wool subsidy for life. 
But these were all linked to pardons for past rebellions. And so we don't know whether he would have kept them on. We, we just don't know, because he gets usurped um, the next year. So you know, maybe he would have... He, 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 there's this thing about acting sternly at first and then, then being merciful. And maybe that's what he was, he was do, doing. We don't know whether it was the thin end of the wedge. We just don't know. Another thing that he's uh, attacked for in the Chronicles is taking poor counsel. John Gower says he took the base, immature counsel of fools to himself and caused the principles of older men to be rejected. Now, this is a downright lie, and Gower ought to be ashamed of himself for, 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 for writing it. Um, uh, Richard had experienced older men. He relied on the opinions of older men, people from his father's court, like Sir Richard Sturry, um, Edward Dallingrig, and, Cl- and Clifford. Um, these were very experienced courtiers and, 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 and diplomats. Um, and in fact, after 1397, uh, Baldwin, in the King's Council in England, um, says the council had never before been so clearly outlined as a staff of expert men. Richard chose people for their expertise and for their, uh, uh, for their ability. And this was the thing, they were not great noblemen, and that's what got up the, the noses of a lot of the chroniclers. Um, people like Simon Burley, who came from obscure origins, Bagot, he was a light knight of low birth, um, Michael de la Pole was son of a Hull wool merchant. Uh, Beecham was, uh, uh, he was called Jenkins. I don't really prove what, he, what his birth was. Nicholas Brember was a merchant. Um, and Roger Walden, who became Archbishop of Canterbury, was the son of a butcher. So Richard went out of his way to choose people for their ability, not, for, not because of their birth. And this is what got up the chronic, noses of chroniclers like Adam of Usk who says, it was in this King Richard's nature to debase the noble and to exalt the ignoble, as he did with this Sir William Baggett, for instance, and with other such low-born men whom he elevated to great positions. But Richard was actually, in doing this, he's actually, again, going by the books of rules for princes, actually uh, judging people on their abilities, not on their birth. And say, creatum secretorum again, do not despise low status in men, though that you see to be abound in the ways of wisdom and good morals, love such men and keep them about, uh, about you. And of course, it's a, it's a theme that goes all the way through Chaucer's writing. In the tale of Melaby, uh, he says, one shouldn't be ashamed to learn from lesser folk than oneself. And in The Wife of Bath's Tale, this whole uh, thing about who is a gentleman. You're a gentleman according to your, how you act and behave, not according to your birth. Um, and this is uh, the old hag who lectures the knight on their wedding, uh, the, 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 the knight on, his, on their wedding night. He says, you speak about nobility as if it's inherited, like old money, uh, as if you can uh, inherit being a gentleman. Such arrogance isn't worth a hen. Always look at he who, at who is the most virtuous in private and in public and who tries to do the noblest deeds he can. Take him for the greatest gentleman. This theme about ability and who you are and your values and yourself is much more important uh, than, than, uh, than where you, who, who you're born. It, goes all, it runs, it's a theme running all the way through Chaucer. And it even runs through the Peasants' Revolt, of course, with, with Adam Delves and Eve Spann, who was then the gentleman, said John Ball. In fact, the tale of Mella B could almost be a blueprint, I think, for, for, for a lot of Richard's uh, rule. There are so many uh, elements, uh, like the, 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 uh, the ambition for peace. Um, that's a very strong point in, in, in the Melaby. Uh, of course, the Melaby, just in case people don't know, is the, uh, is the tale that Chaucer himself tells in, in the Canterbury Tales. And it's actually a, a translation of a French, a translation of a Latin, originally Latin book. And it's a, it's a very interesting wor- work. It's, it's not exactly a book of rules for princes, but what it is, it's a... Um, it's, a, it's a, an example of how to take counsel. And it's, uh, it's a really important... Um, it, 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 it takes you through, in a very modern way, it shows you uh, uh, somebody having to take counsel and then goes through all the things and what did he do wrong. Um, anyway, I can't go on about that. Um, and he also goes on about the Queen uh, as intercessor in the, in the Melibius. The, uh, Prudence, who is, the, who is Melibius' uh, wife, um, counsels uh, Melibius all the way through. And, uh, and the Queen as intercessor is a very important theme in, in, in this period. Um, and we see it with, uh, being acted out with Anne, and, and, with Anne of Bohemia. Um, even before she became queen, um, uh, Richard intending to, was intending to pardon the rebels of 1381, 
And, uh, and it says in the Parliament roll, it says, out of reverence for God and his sweet mother, St. Mary, and at the special request of the noble lady, the Lady Anne, soon, if it please God, to be Queen of England, that he pardons them. And this whole thing about... Uh, the, uh, the idea, I think the theory was that the, the king was God, and he, he had to rule, and he couldn't, uh, he couldn't show uh, favour to anybody. Um, so he had to be really stern and, in, and implacable in his justice. But the queen could beg for mercy, and that's what Anne is doing on very many occasions, um, on some very high-profile cases like, like John of Northampton, um, and also on some very uh, unnoble cases. Um, there's one uh, case in the, in the, in the patent rolls uh, of Juliana, of Hambledon, condemned when pregnant for having, with other thieves unknown, gone into the house of Percival the Walsh at Who, and there stolen his goods. And on the same day at Who, beaten Agnes, wife of the said Percival, gouged out her eyes and cut out her tongue. And Anne pleads for mercy for, 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 uh, for, for this woman because she's preg- uh, pregnant. Now, was Richard really unpopular? That's the other thing that people assume, that he was unpopular. I think Nigel uh, Saul, in his biography, says, well, uh, Richard was, um, uh, we, we know Richard was unpopular, but it's very difficult to find any evidence for that. Um, and, and it is true. There's hardly any evidence that Richard was impossible, uh, unpopular. Um, Adam Rusk writes, um, so Richard, farewell, at the height of your glory, cast down by the wheel of fortune, fall miserably into the hands of Duke Henry amidst the silent curses of your people. But of course, look, when it was written, it's, it's written um, in 1401, after Henry's seized power. Um, so, uh, uh, of course, you don't have to be a detective to know um, why Usk would be writing such things as that. Um, it's, it's, it's Henry IV uh, leaning on his, uh, on his uh, uh, chroniclers and uh, p- people to, to put out uh, uh, the, 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 this, this disinformation about what happened. Now, of course... Um, Henry was in exile um, in, in 1398, um, and his, uh, his, his uh, father, the, uh, John of Gaunt, dies in 1399, and that's when, um, uh, th- that's when it, it, it all happens. Um, what, what happens is that uh, part of Henry's terms of exile is that he's, uh, he, he's uh, got £2,000 a year, uh, and Poisson says, well, he'll have a very nice time. He can, he's got lots of friends abroad. He can go on crusades. He'll have a lovely time. He's no, there's no problem with him. And, and I think, you know, I, I suspect Henry was very much like George Bush. You know, he comes from a very powerful son of a very powerful man. He's very laid back, has a nice time. Um, but he has powerful friends pushing him. And uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the terms of the exile, of Henry's exile, um, was that on no account was he to meet up with uh, that ex-Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Arundel, because Arundel is the one that, that, that Richard's afraid of. He's the schemer. He's the one with the head on his shoulders, and he doesn't want them getting together. And I'm sure with uh, Arundel pushes uh, Henry into going for the throne, and then once they're there, he starts the propaganda campaign against Richard, and calling him a young, calling him a boy, uh, calling him in vain glorious, and all this kind of stuff. And we certainly know that... Um, uh, there was a, a propaganda exercise went out because uh, one of the chronicles tells us how Henry calls in the chronicles, uh, ostensibly because he wants to check on his claim to the throne, but of course everybody really knew why it was. It was he didn't want to, anything nice said about Richard or anything nasty said about him. Um, we can see in two of the chronicles, um, uh, on the Dulacus chronicle, uh, uh, which has been pro-Richard uh, 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 up to this time, a new scribe suddenly takes over when Henry comes into power, um, and, says, and tut tuts and says, oh, there's a lot of stuff here that shouldn't have been written. Uh, and uh, and in, the, uh, in the Kirkstall chronicle, um, it's the same scribe carries on, but he just totally changes sides, and uh, just because, uh, having been very nice about Richard, he suddenly becomes uh, uh, very awful. And uh, in Walsingham's chronicle, one of Walsingham's many chronicles, um, there's a little uh, rubric in the side uh, saying, beware of uh, whatever's going to offend people. And that's because there were some things about the uh, John of Gaunt in there. So so we know this was written once Henry had had come into power. Letterbook H of the City of London has got pages missing from, uh, from that period, from, uh, uh, from, Henry the, uh, for, from when uh, Henry seizes power. We don't know what they said, but obviously they've been taken out. They're one of the few pages being taken out uh, because they must have said something uh, uh, offensive to Henry. 
We also think that Henry must have been leaning on, his, uh, on, on poets, trying to get uh, uh, writers into his court who would actually keep going with this propaganda thing. And he tries to get uh, um, uh, this um, uh, delightful lady here, Christine de Pisa, uh, she, he tries to get her to, join, to come to his court and become a, a court writer. Um, and in fact, what he's got, he's got, he's got her son, who was with, uh, the, uh, with the Earl of Salisbury, um, and, and was being uh, educated by the Earl of Salisbury, and he's, got, he's captured her son. And so he says, well, you better come and collect him then, you know. Um, and actually, Christine de Pisa says, I was not in the least tempted to do this, considering the way things were. And in fact, it had a happy ending because she managed to uh, get, it, get her son back and, uh, without actually going to the court, and she actually fooled Henry. Um, we also uh, can see that he must have been leaning on uh, John Gower because Gower um, not only writes, uh, pens the Tripartite Chronicle, which is a, 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 a politically correct version of the last ten years of history, um, and it's really one of the most disgraceful pieces of brown-nosing in uh, uh, the history of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of literature, I think. Um, I'll just to give you a taste of it... Um, he writes about Richard. He calls Richard, Richard is wicked, greedy, poisonous, infatuated, false, cunning, two-faced, juvenile, violent, evil, oh, and offensive to one and all. And then there's a little bit, just one passage from Henry. Then the noble, then the noble Henry, a friend to all honour, came into full bloom and was mightier than all. Just as the rose is the crown of flowers, he was the best of good men, the protector of the English, the model of virtues, the most excellent of the excellent. You know, it goes on like that for thousands of lines. Um, and he, the other thing is that Gower does is that he goes back and starts revising stuff that he's already written. Um, the Vox Clementis, uh, for example, um, which we uh, think perhaps was uh, written in 1386, just at the time when the, uh, the barons were taking over, um, he blames Richard's counsellors. He says the boy, that's Richard, because he is quite young at that point, the boy is free from blame, but those who have instrumented this boyish reign shall not endure without a fall. So not the king, but his counsel is the cause of our sorrows. But then he rewrites that some, other, some, uh, some time later. And people have always taken this as being an example of how we can see Richard's getting unpopular because they think he, he rewrote it in 3091. The king, an undisciplined boy, neglects the moral behaviour by which a man might grow up from a boy. Vain glory makes these youthful comrades vain. Sin springs up on every side of the boy. I hope you're enjoying this, my lord. Um, and he who is quite easily led takes to every evil. Now... Um, this has been sort of taken as evidence that Richard was getting unpopular. But a few lines later on, he gives the game away. He writes, his destiny does arise out of his wrongdoing. How does he know what... It's absolutely clear that he didn't write this in 1391. He wrote it after, after, Richard, after Richard's death, uh, 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 or at least after the usurpation. Um, and again, look at what he says. The undisciplined boy, the man, the boy, vainglory, youthful boy. He's, he's parroting uh, Arundel's uh, speech to Parliament in 1399. And what, even more fun is the Confessio Amantis, um, which he, he re again revises. He does three takes on the uh, Confessio Amantis. This is his poem, a big, long poem in English. Um, in the first version... He, 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 said, he describes how he meets up with Richard uh, on, 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 he's rowing on the, on the Thames and he bumps into Richard and Richard says, invites him into his boat and commissions him to write something in English. Um, now in the first version um, he, he, he greets Chaucer, he says, uh, Venus says and greet Chaucer when you meet as my disciple and my poet and there's a panegyric to Richard II. In the second version he, he omits the uh, mention of Chaucer and, uh, and he uh, omits the panegyric. And then in the third version, he, 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 he cancels all uh, references to Chaucer and all references to, to uh, Richard II. And instead, he dedicates it to uh, Henry of Lancaster. Now, Gower, uh, and what he says, that in, uh, and for that few men indict in our English, I think to make a book for King Richard's sake. Um, now, in this uh, version, this uh, later version, this becomes a book for England's sake. Um, and then a little bit later on, he writes, this book upon amendment, to stand at his commandment, with whom my heart is of accord, I send unto mine own lord, which of Lancaster is Henry named. Um, 
And he also writes this in the rubric here. Um, he says that he'd wrote, written this in 1393. Gower says in the rubric here. He's written it in the year 16th of King Richard. Um, uh, uh, and that's what he claims he, he's done. Now, the only snag with this is, um, in 1392, uh, Henry was not Henry of Lancaster. He wouldn't be Henry of Lancaster until his, uh, John of Gaunt died. And John of Gaunt doesn't die until 1399. Um, and uh, Gower, uh, Gower obviously suddenly realises he's made a mistake in the text, but he can't change it. So he suddenly adds here, um, so Gower composed and finally completed this present book, which he most promptly dedicated with special respect to his lord, Henry of Lancaster, uh, who, of course, at the time was Count of Derby. So, so it's a real sort of, a, oh dear, you know, <laughs> what a giveaway. So he clearly was going after, he was, uh, must have been under pressure from Henry to rewrite uh, things and backdate them to make it look like he was writing them during Richard's reign. It's also said that Richard's vindictive. Um, uh, well, you know, I don't see this at all. Um, in 1388, um, Nigel Saul says that the, uh, the, the barons, when they, the uncles, when they took over Rich, uh, the, the, the rule of the ki- kingdom, um, they destroyed the court's inner circle. Was, was, it was destroyed. Um, Anne, Anne of Bohemia went down on her knees to beg uh, Gloucester to, uh, to, to let Simon Burley, the tutor, off, because he's an old man, but they won't. They have him, uh, they have him executed. They execute something like uh, ten of, of Richard's closest advisors and followers, and another seven are exiled. Um, now, in 1397, uh, the there's only two people who get, who, who get killed. Um, that's Arundel, uh, who is executed, but he's a real troublemaker, um, and uh, Gloucester, who dies in Calais. Now, and he may have been murdered. Um, I'm not defending this, <laughs> but, um, but he was ill when he was arrested, and it is quite possible that he did die of, of natural causes. So really, but anyway, it's only two people. Uh, I don't think that... How is that vindictive? What, what are people on about? It's just because the Chronicles say it's vindictive, um, and that Henry's merciful. But again, I think Henry's mercy is a real fiction again, um, and it's all part of his propaganda. Um, and I think he was, he was appearing to be merciful as a matter of, uh, of policy. There's a letter um, from Coluccio Salutati, Salutati who was uh, the, the, the chancellor in Florence in, in, 14, in, in 1400s. Um, he wrote, writes to Archbishop Arundel saying, one thing which I cannot keep to myself is that it is most noble of the victor to avoid further bloodshed and the execution of suspected traitors, for in so doing you create more danger for yourself rather than less. So uh, Salutati was expressing an opinion to Arundel saying, good idea not to appear to be actually sort of taking revenge. Now, um, what happens in 1400 is there's a, a plot, apparently a plot, to uh, kill Henry, because even though Richard's in prison and Henry's in power, um, there's still a strong feeling that Richard, Richard's the rightful king and Henry is the usurper. Um, uh, and there's a, 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 a plot against Henry. And what happens is that the ringleaders are beheaded by the mobs. Now, when we look at this, seeing that all these acts were perpetrated solely by the violence of the common people, again, it's as if um, Henry has got them to do it. So he can say, I didn't kill them, it's the mob that killed them. And uh, he says, I was fear that the possession of the sword, which is allowed to them in such circumstances... Now, that's another thing, which was allowed to them in such circumstances. So obviously, they were given swords and said, get on with it, you know. Um, uh, So it it seems like uh, it it may have been policy to actually offload the the guilt of killing people. But but even so, Henry still kills a lot of people. Um, 30 of the lesser rebels were marched with hands tied behind them from Cyrus to Oxford. I mean, can you imagine that, walking along that that far with your hands tied, tied? Um, and then they were, there were summary executions in Oxford, and with all the trimmings, there was lots of, uh, lots of gouging out and uh, uh, horrible tortures. Um, Thomas Blunt, for example, as an account of how t- Thomas Blunt has his, uh, has his uh, uh, stomach ta- uh, ripped open and his bowels taken out, and he sat in a chair in front of a fire. And then the executioner, while, the, while Sir Thomas was thus seated before the fire, his bowels burning before him, because they'd thrown his bowels on the... What, he, what the executioner did was a neat trick. He took his bowels out, tied them off with a bit of cord, the, the, the open bit, so he could still speak, and had a bit of air left. And the executioner asked him if he'd drink. No, replied Sir Thomas Blunt, you have taken away wherein to put it, thank God. And then he begged the executioner to deliver him from this world, for it did him harm to see the traitors. 
So a, a, a lot of t- torture and, and death come, uh, comes back in. Adam Vosky again uh, recounts how he sees the Earls of Kent and Salisbury. Uh, 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 I saw their bodies chopped up like carcasses of beasts killed in the chase, being carried to London, partly in sacks and partly on poles, slung across pairs of men's shoulders, where they were later salted to preserve them. Well, you know... Uh, what does Richard do? He, uh, he finds those who rebelled in 1387, £13, 6 and 8 pence to £100. I, mean, I think that's a bargain you know, compared with uh, Henry IV's uh, revenge. There's also a possibility that Richard was actually a popular king. He was certainly popular by, uh, by the Peasants' Revolt. The Peasants, in the revolt in 1381, they said, we're, we're, the, the king is with us, we're in favour of the king. Um, and he, he keeps doing uh, popular things as well. Like, for example, in 1385, when he's only quite young, um, he's uh, with John of Gaunt uh, on an exhibi- expedition to Scotland. And John of Gaunt wants to... They capture Edinburgh, and they, John of Gaunt wants to cross the Firth of Forth and carry on uh, beating up the Scots. And, and Richard says, no, we're not going to do it because we haven't got provisions for that. And I, I know we'll, men will die if we carry on. We've got to go back. And so he turns back. His Cheshire bodyguards certainly uh, seemed to be uh, very fond of him. They called him Dickon, they called him. Dickon sleeps surely while we, while we keep, keep watch. Um, and the, the John Cretton says that uh, there were something like 40,000 Welshmen came to uh, support him uh, when they heard of uh, Henry, Henry's arrival. In, in, it may be an exaggeration, but, and in any case, what happened was that they, Richard didn't show up himself, so they all disbanded and they got cold feet. Also, Caroline Barron has pointed out that it took the Londoners six weeks. They didn't just immediately welcome Henry. It took them six weeks uh, to, to agree to support Henry. And, and then it was only once Richard had been actually uh, caught. Uh, there's the tale of Jenico, the, the, the Gascon squire, who refuses to take off Richard's uh, uh, badges and, 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 and uh, stuff. Um, there's also uh, Henry IV's own son, uh, who, of course, becomes Henry V, uh, the Prince of Wales. He, uh, this is a picture of, uh, uh, of, of Richard knighting him in Ireland. And uh, Richard would, and, and he seemed to have been very fond of each other. And uh, Henry's son hated Henry himself. And, and, and there's a story in Creton saying that, uh, that, uh, that Henry uh, wouldn't go to his father until Richard told him he had to go to his father when, when Henry came to arrest Richard. So all these little stories sort of indicate that, that he might have been a, a popular man. And certainly the, 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 the abbots and the, the barons who, who gathered in, 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 in Westminster in, in, 13, in December of 1399 to plot this uh, assassination of Henry, they hadn't got anything. Richard was in jail by this time, so they hadn't got anything to gain by doing this. But they just felt so strongly uh, that, that they ought to. And maybe Christine de Pizan, when she calls uh, Richard a chevalier wearing a crown in a place near the sea, willingly he was praised for being valiant, a true Lancelot. Maybe she's not too far from, uh, from, the, uh, from the mark. Um, just um, very quickly now uh, about censorship. We also know there must have been a very repressive re- regime came in because there's clearly a lot of censorship went on. Um, the, uh, of course, one of the things that com- comes in is the, uh, de, uh, the act of de, de uh, of the burning of heretics, um, which Arundel has been trying to get going. He couldn't persuade Richard to do when he was uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, when Richard was in power. But he, he, of course, he persuades Henry to do I'm sure it's part of the deal that they get start burning heretics. But it wasn't just about burning heretics. It was also about a, a suppression of books and suppression of anything critical to the church, especially if it was... Uh, written in English. Um, No one to preach, hold, teach, instruct, or make or write any book contrary to the Catholic faith, and that all having such books shall deliver such books up uh, within 40 days from the time of this uh, proclamation. And of course, uh, that would be a a book burning then. Um, So it's suppression of books there. And in 1409, Arundel brings in his his constitutions, which go even further. They they actually bring in an Orwellian uh, thought police, um, where if you're at university, every month you have to report to your superiors and say what you're thinking and what you believe, and you have to be quizzed on, on your beliefs. 
And we actually know that some books were, were being censored. Um, uh, I, 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 this is the Ellesmere Manuscript, and in, uh, a few years ago, uh, I, I was allowed to put it under the microscope in, in Huntington Library, and we uh, had a look at these images. Uh, this is of the monk, and uh, it's always been a bit of a puzzling image, because the monk is meant to be this larger-than-life character. Uh, he's got a bald head that shines in the sun, he's very bon viveurish, um, and he's got big gold brooch under, under his chin. Um, and yet this uh, painting, he, and he loves hunting, and this p uh, picture of him in the Ellesmere, it shows the hunting horses and the jingling, the Canterbury bells, which are all part of the thing, but then he's covered in black, and he's got a black hat on. Um, and I was sure that it's been painted over and for, for some reason. And when we put the, um, when we put the microscope uh, on the bit under the chin, uh, sure enough, we saw gold. And there was so it's, it, clearly it's been painted over with black pigment to, disgu to disguise us. We don't know why, but it's, I, I, it, it's, it makes perfect sense that it would be when Arundel's in power, nobody knows what Arundel's going to come down on, what he's going to disapprove of. And to have a, 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 a worldly prelate in a picture would have been uh, maybe a bit near the, 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 the bone. Um, so Henry is regarded as a military champion, a uh, thoughtful nobleman with experience and wisdom. I think he's, he, there's no evidence of that at all. There's a wonderful book, new book by Douglas Biggs um, called Three Armies in Britain. And Douglas says um, Henry actually avoided politics throughout his early adulthood. He'd got no military experience, really, and he was totally extravagant. For instance, he spent 4000 on his first Prussian crusade, and he couldn't keep discipline. He wasn't, this idea of him being a great military man is, is all eyewash. And Biggs uh, defines him as a playboy. And I, I think that's exactly what, what Henry was. And he was just putty in the hands of Thomas Arundel. And under, and under uh, Henry, you've got censorship, intimidation. Everybody didn't know where they were. He was an illegal usurper. And I think he's the tyrant uh, and uh, not uh, uh, Richard, who was acting in the interests of his people. Um, so that's really the argument, and uh, uh, thank you very much. Uh, I think it was a brave exper experiment in monarchical rule. <laughs> Thanks a lot. This event was recorded live on Thursday the 19th of June 2008 at the Bishopsgate Institute in London. This podcast is copyright the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>